welcome to episode 53 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Alegi. My comrade in arms, Peter Lim, is in Sweden at an academic conference, and so I'm piloting this ship uh, today. But I'm in good company. Uh, we are joined by uh, Professor David Wiley, a professor of sociology and African studies at Michigan State University and a former chair of the Council of Directors of Title VI National Resource Centers. Professor James Pritchett, professor of anthropology and current director of the African Studies Center at Michigan State University. Joshua Grace, a doctoral student in African history at Michigan State. And long distance via Skype, Professor Laura Mitchell from uh, University of California, Irvine, and a former Fulbright Hayes grantee to South Africa. And the topic of today's session is the elimination of United States government-funded international education and foreign language programs, particularly Title VI and Fulbright Hayes, for the financial year, fiscal year of 2011, and their impact, the impact of these cuts on African studies, particularly in the United States. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. I thought it would be a good way to start to turn the ball over to uh, David Wiley and give us perhaps a little bit of background on the origins of the Title VI uh, programs and the Fulbright-Hayes program as well. Yes, the uh, unusual thing that happened here is uh, the United States, out of a very isolationist history, uh, brought the boys home from World War II uh, in the mid-1940s uh, and realized that the U.S. Uh, needed to be part of the rest of the world. And as a result of that, founded uh, in the 1950s the Title VI and Fulbright-Hayes programs, uh, which had as, their, had as their basic focus then the uh, building of language capacity. It was at the same time that the U.S. was uh, pushing heavily to build the United Nations and to build a, a U.S. presence uh, abroad, and we knew that we needed the languages uh, of the rest of the world and to understand that world, which uh, World War II had made clear that we did not uh, understand. So extraordinarily out of that, with a very small amount of funding compared with any other federal programs, uh, the United States built um, over a half century um, the largest, uh, most successful language and area studies uh, uh, program in, in the world, spread across, uh, on average, about 60 to 70 U.S. major universities, and uh, offering uh, between the 120 centers located in those uh, universities for virtually every major world area, uh, Middle East, Latin America, um, uh, Asia, three parts of Asia, Europe, and so on. Uh, the capacity to teach uh, 220 less commonly taught languages, Farsi, uh, uh, West African Pidgin, Xhosa from South Africa, uh, the indigenous languages of Latin America, uh, Hindi, Mandarin, uh, and in terms of security, uh, Arabic, uh, Somali, uh, Swahili, uh, and, and the like. Um, these programs were so successful that a number of the scholars brought new perspectives to U.S. foreign policy, and there's always been a tension between the scholars and these centers 
um, when they came forward with new insights that w didn't match what the State Department or the White House wanted abroad. As a result of that, a number of the critics of the U.S. war in Vietnam uh, came out of the Asian Studies Center uh, with the uh, Con Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars based out of the Title VI uh, Area Center at University of Michigan. And uh, that was so disruptive that uh, Richard Nixon, as president, tried to zero out these programs and, uh, in the 1972. And as, and as a result of that, the university presidents from all across the country came and said, this is crazy to have built uh, this, this unique program across uh, all the world's languages and area studies and now to, uh, to zap it. So can we learn from this uh, struggle from the 1970s that uh, saved Title VI uh, programs from uh, being slashed and, and even killed? Can we apply some of these lessons today? We can apply some of the lessons today, but it's, we have to do so in what we did not have in the 70s, which is the huge fiscal crisis, which has been defined by the decision of the United States Congress not to raise taxes on the biggest corporations and the biggest uh, income earners in, in the United States, and to spend the money on the military instead, because the other side of this story is that not only have we now cut by 40 percent the and really crippled these number of programs which we can re review, um, but uh, not only cut, cut, cut them by 40 percent, but we have quadrupled and quintupled funding inside the Defense Department and the defense agencies for the teaching of these languages to military personnel as distinct from building the nation's scholars in these centers. For, for those of uh, you out there who don't know the actual numbers, they're amazing. In Title VI and Fulbright-Hayes were cut $50 million approximately. That's about 40% uh, of the total budget. Um, what do these cuts mean, James, for the programs that area study centers, uh, including African study centers, offer? Some of that meaning we'll, we, we will be interpreting for, for some time. As what happens often, we get the word uh, about a cut, and we have oftentimes only a week or a week and a half to respond. Our new budget has to be done by this Friday, which doesn't leave a lot of time for deliberations. I'm in constant contact with my colleagues across the country, fellow directors now, trying to figure out what our collective response should be. Uh, part of the collective uh, reasoning, figuring these things out, requires us to do exactly what David is doing, to try and figure out how we got to this moment. And if I could add uh, a couple things to, 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 to Dave's history. One is to, to, to recognize any time our Congress speaks, there are probably multiple strands of debates and contestations going on. There are those in Congress for whom this moment is, is without historical precedence. It's simply a sum zero game. Our federal budget is too large. We need to reduce it. We have to cut education. We have to cut labor. We have to cut a lot of different things. There's no historical context for many of them. There are others, however, for, for whom this is a very political moment. We have people who are and have been anti-federal government funding of education, period. Uh, whether it's K through 12, they think that should be a local um, question, a local issue. They think that at the university level, we have community colleges. That's for communities to decide what form a function, how they're financed. They're state institutions. That's a state matter. and they're, are private colleges and universities, and that should play to the market. So there are some who have nothing in particular against international studies or any other form of studies. They just simply ideologically don't believe that education should be funded by the federal government. There are, however, at least three or four historical strands 
of, 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 of individuals who have been against area studies for a very, very long time. There are those, as David mentioned, who go back to the 60s who think that area studies open the door to sort of leftover hippies coming into the, the academy, um, that this led to uh, the university being taken over by tenured radicals, and that they are still indeed fighting that 1960s battle between left and right, uh, between hawks and doves, and they are still out there today. There are those for whom 1991 was the moment of politicalization, politicization uh, the fall of the Soviet empire, and the conversation, the discourse that was going on at that time about a peace dividend. America's unrivaled. We don't need to spend trillions on defense. We have this unique opportunity to build our infrastructure, shore up Social Security, so on and so forth. Um, and there are those who were quite disappointed when a lot of that peace dividend went into education, including those in the military that were angry back in the 1960s when military money went to fund the National Defense Education Act, and now they're angry again that defense money is being used to fund educational pursuits. So for them, uh, it is a matter of military versus civilian. And then there's the 2001 strand, the Daniel Pipes, the Denise de Souza's, the Stanley Kurtz, the Kramers of the world, who once again uh, go back to you know, the hippies, the tenured radicals who've now transformed into postmodernist and, and deconstructionist who have no sense of truth, who have no sense of loyalty to the United States, and therefore money for international education should not go to them, but should go to other agencies, and as we've talked about, it's the military in particular. So at this moment in history, there's no way that we can be for sure, I mean, we do indeed know that there were certain figures who testified before Congress, so we know that Congress heard their voices. How we are going to respond to it, one of the difficulties is that this budget is for the fiscal year that starts in two months. Some of the money for this fiscal year, uh, that's be to begin in August, had actually already been dispensed. So there was no opportunity for Congress to, 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 to act on that. Uh, the FLAS funding, for example, we will get 100% of our FLAS funding next year. It was already in the pipeline. The group projects abroad, uh, for us Africanists, uh, those of us here at Michigan State, our colleague Dion Ganyanyi, left the last week to take his group of students to Tanzania for intensive studying of, of Swahili. Uh, the seminars abroad, that money was already dispensed. So all of these cuts came out of those areas that, that had not been dispensed yet. So it will only be next year that we'll see a grander philosophical statement about how they feel about the, uh, the various elements across the board. The impact, well, the immediate impact, as I get from conversations with my fellow directors, is that SCALI, the Summer Cooperative African Language Institute, will disappear. We simply can't afford to, to, to continue it. Um, some of our national collaborations around the Africana Librarians Collaboration, WARA, uh, our support for WARA, our support for Can the... you just describe WARA for those WARA, the West African Research, Research Association, Association that is, um, results in an institute in Dakar, the West African Research Center, that brings together West African scholars with uh, external scholars, uh, brings them over. Uh, they have other strands of funding. They're part of, and Dave, you might want to talk about this, the KORCs. That's the Center for American Overseas uh, Research Centers, which has centers for American scholars to have bases in Cairo and Beirut and um, 
uh, West Africa, and uh, along with uh, many other uh, programs, international research studies and programs, which uh, funds the studies of how people learn languages and the development of new text uh, for learning, mm -hmm. uh, Amharic or Somali, whatever the, the language is. Uh, all of that, no, no grants. And the, here at Michigan State especially, we've, we've been uh, zapped with, uh, we had a large grant to build a library of uh, African oral narratives to support uh, language learning in the U.S. centers and learning about uh, African culture with uh, partners that we had developed in Ethiopia, in Ghana, in Malawi, um, and in uh, South Africa. All of that money zapped completely, uh, lost half of our grant. Uh, so we'll have to tell our African partners, sorry, uh, we're committed to you, we're committed to learning your languages, but uh, the federal government no longer sees it as a, as a priority. So the specific cut for the national resource centers was 46.53%, uh, nearly half of our budget. So at this very moment, centers are deciding what their priorities are. Here at Michigan State, I, the advisory committee, has decided that our priorities are holding on to our experienced human resources, first and foremost. And so perhaps one-third of our budget will be taken up with salaries. Secondly, we all agree that language is at the center of the area studies enterprise. So no matter what, we have to maintain the quality of our African language program. And that means not only holding on to funds to pay tutors, native speakers of these African languages, but we also need to keep in their money for pedagogical resources, for training, for, for those elements. Uh, thirdly, we're trying to maintain, need to maintain, the vibrancy of our public programming, um, our weekly lecture series, our special lectures, because that's the primary way in which we contribute to, to the educational process. Um, it is a way that we bring faculty and students together to form something like community, an African studies community on this campus. That's the way that we even announce our very existence in the absence of that public programming. Uh, we don't even exist. And then fourthly, we decided our priority was stimulating and activating student engagement with, uh, with African issues on our own campus. So a lot of the collaborative activities that people have come accustomed to us supporting over, over the years, like I say, joint library acquisition, microfilming projects, uh, things of that nature. Again, we had mentioned the, the support for WARA. Those are things that are, are, are just simply not going to, to be on the table anymore. We're not going to be able to, to support those things. We're going to have to just take care of fundamental issues on, on our own campus. If I could uh, bring in Laura Mitchell from uh, California now, who joins us via Skype. Uh, uh, Laura, um, James mentioned uh, the Summer Cooperative African Language Institute being eliminated. Um, you as a director of graduate studies uh, at your institution, uh, can you give us your opinion, your interpretation about this, this cut and the, the impact of them on your program? Well, both um, David and James were talking about the really fundamental um, crisis in area studies programs that these cuts engender. And, and I'm thinking about this even more broadly because of how much really important work happens at those centers and how that spills off onto campuses where there is significant area studies work without the support of the centers. And things like SCALI, the Cooperative African Languages Summer Program, where we count on 
the ability to send students to area study centers to get specialized training so that even at a, a campus that's not funded by FLAS or Title VI, we can still engage in this really important work to understand the world outside the U.S. And so these kinds of closures, particularly Scully and the Fulbright-Hayes doctoral dissertation abroad, cut off a lot of programs at the knees. And what I'm seeing or thinking about in the near term is the inability of a whole range of programs, both area studies, places like Michigan State, um, places that don't have that area studies infrastructure like UCI, how do we continue to train graduate students to be able to go abroad? And that the kind of democratization that we saw happening in the academy since the 1970s with a proliferation of diverse PhD programs will by necessity contract because it'll only be the institutions that have endowments large enough to internally fund their students and internally fund specific language study they're going to be able to survive this contraction. And those are probably going to be the very wealthy universities, uh, most likely Ivy League universities uh, and similar type institutions. Um, uh, Laura, you were also a recipient of the Fulbright-Hayes DDRA a while back. Uh, we crossed paths in the South African archives for, for a while. Um, tell us a little bit about how the DDRA sort of uh, facilitated your, your training and um, uh, and just some reflections on that experience. Um, well, if I can broaden your question, um, I participated in SCALI at the end of my first year in graduate school to study Easy Calsa in Boston. Then I had two years of FLAS funding at UCLA to continue language study in Zulu. And then I got DDRA to actually spend time in South Africa and the Netherlands um, putting that language training into action and working in the archives. Um, I really, I have a personal commitment to public education. I did my undergraduate and PhD at public institutions in California where I now teach. And my ability to interact firsthand with undergraduates and give them, you know, ongoing conversations about what's happening in South Africa, that my language abilities, my knowledge of archives for training PhD students, and my sense of what's happening on the ground in Africa are all connected to how lucky I was to have received a range of federal funds in order to become a local expert and to bring that back and continue to engage Americans, particularly American students, in a broad range of educational opportunities. And I think that it'll be very sad that if in 10 years when we're hiring the next round of potential teachers, people like Josh, who's here in the room, um, that they won't have that have had that opportunity for hands-on, face-to-face interaction with the site that they study. Josh, Grace, a doctoral student in African history here at Michigan State, uh, one of our very best students, uh, succeeded in an incredibly competitive competition to get one of these coveted Fulbright-Hayes Awards for the next academic year. And then you received news, Josh, just recently that uh, well, how did that make you feel, and how have you coped with this awful news? Well, it sort of has sent us back to the drawing board. Um, I, I found out about it actually on the day I was taking an exam, uh, on my comprehensive exam, so I, I tried not to feel much about it. Um, sort of compartmentalized everything and um, tried to get through the weekend with the writing. And then uh, I've tried to, to be as, as, as um, I guess, as positive as possible about it, um, looking towards other 
funding sources, uh, including the National Science Foundation um, doctoral dissertation um, improvement grants. Um, so really just going back to everything that we were doing uh, this fall in terms of, of, of writing applications, getting letters of, um, of recommendation, and searching for some of the, the more non-traditional um, avenues for, for, uh, for funding for uh, traditional, well, for area studies um, uh, PhD students. So, I mean, at this point, we're still in limbo. Uh, fortunately, I have received uh, some money to start my, my research in Tanzania from the history department uh, this, this coming year. Uh, we're waiting to hear what MSU uh, will provide um, for those of us who have sort of uh, have been left uh, at this point um, wavering. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not everything is uncertain at this point. Um, my wife, Bree, also does research, uh, sociological research in Tanzania, uh, and we're still waiting to hear back about what her funding situation will be. So really basic things like where will we be living? Or will we be living together? Do we need to get uh, a sign a lease for her to be in East Lansing? All these sorts of really basic things are still up in the air um, at this point. So. That's the, the, the hard reality that, that these cuts present us. And I think I read somewhere that the, the, the Fulbright-Hayes program funding was about $5.3 million, which amounts to roughly, what, three or four Tomahawk missiles um, right. at best. So that, that's something to keep in mind as well. Yeah, I want the exact figure. 6.3 million, <laughs> okay, maybe four or five Tomahawk missiles. Right. So, you know, I think we fired about 160, 180 in the first day of the campaign in Libya. Which yeah, the total, the yeah total, sorry, David. The total Title VI uh, cuts, cuts that we're looking at here are less than the expenditures of the, the U.S. in one day of the Afghanistan and uh, Libyan um, missions at this point. I mean, I, I, to me, this, this, this has brought home so much that we, I think we're at a crossroads this country. The crisis here is because of our failure to tax uh, the elites and the elite corporations of the, to get the income this country needs. But more important than that is our incredible investment in uh, military and intelligence uh, act activities abroad. That about a trillion uh, a year uh, makes what, what we are doing in Title VI uh, look like peanuts. It is, it is a huge uh, dissonance. And what it really says is that we're much more committed towards the military uh, approach to the rest of the world than we are towards negotiation, which the State Department and uh, Bureau of Cultural Affairs uh, can do. One reflection of this is the fact that uh, the current U.S. military um, personnel component in Germany alone at the headquarters of the U.S. African Command in, in one country, the U.S. Uh, number of employees working on U.S. military Africa policy and programs is uh, about 1,500 people, more than three times what the State Department and USAID have to work on Africa at the same time. We have opted at this point in history uh, for the, 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 mil the military option, and uh, now we're starting to see the funding uh, move away from all sorts of civilian programs, uh, especially in higher education, uh, towards funding the military capacity in, in, in this area. So I think that's to me, that's the decision point that we are at. Uh. I, I, I agree with you totally, David. Um, absolutely. I think there's the, the additional component of, of timing 
the fact that we only have 10 days to respond to these cuts makes it almost institutionally <laughs> impossible for us to do anything. Many of my colleagues at, at, at various Title VI universities around the country had made the choice to invest much of their Title VI money in faculty, courses, courses that uh, you know, would have low enrollments that otherwise would not be supported, uh, have hired faculty that will start, that will go on the payroll within a couple of months. And to, to lose half of your, your, your budget at, at this late date makes it, it, it almost impossible to, to respond in any effective way. Many of the, the programs are really in crisis mode. People are arriving, they expect their paychecks, and, 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 and there's nothing that can be done at this moment. There is that larger issue, and, and that's the reason I took the time to go back and talk about uh, the, you know, the left versus right in the 60s, the, the, uh, the tenured radicals in the, of the 1990s, the uh, post-9-11 accusations about, about you know, postmodernists and deconstructionists who have no loyalty to any version of something called the truth. I really do think that that's an, an important lens because what we're seeing is not just the cuts in Title VI in Department of edu Education. We are seeing a parallel increase in international and language funding within the Department of Education. This very summer alone, a number of new language flagship programs that offered institutional grants for people studying languages, even African languages in the intensive format, as well as an array of new Defense Department individual scholarships that look very much just like FLAS. You go overseas, you, you study language intensively. Every time we turn around, we're hearing about some new, less commonly taught language program that's being housed in defense. So their money's going up at the same time that ours is going down. So it's not just a matter of neglect uh, of international studies. Uh, that would be bad enough. But I think it, as you are pointing out, David, it's, it's, it's some fundamental decisions are made about where international education ought to take place. There are those that say, if it's because of our business competitive, then let business fund it. Uh, if universities want to brag about we're internationalizing, we're producing global citizens, then let universities pay for it. But if the argument is that having citizens that are skilled in foreign language and culture helps our national defense, then let the defense pay for it. So there, I mean, there, there's a much more uh, there's a, a much more serious philosophical debate going on than just the financial debate. Yeah, and it's fiercely politicized. Of it course. really is. Um, so, should Africanists go to work for the CIA, the NSA, the DIA, and other U.S. intelligence agencies or the military? Uh, some argue that this kind of specialized knowledge of Africa might make for better U.S. foreign policy and practice. Uh, any views on that? Laura, you're welcome to chime yeah, in as well. I would say, of course, Africanists should go to work for those agencies if that's where their interest is and they're politically comfortable there. But that should not be the only place that Africanists work, and we shouldn't limit our funding for training only to develop specialists who are going to go work for the government because we need specialists in education, we need specialists in business, and we need generally educated citizens. I mean, it's a fairly old saw, but if we look at what happens in K through 12 education and how little Africa features in most states in the curriculum, then it's no wonder that there's not a lot of public interest or outcry for more nuanced African foreign policy because Americans simply haven't had the opportunity to learn about it. And if we're not training broad spectrum university teachers to teach at a range of schools that don't specialize in African studies, 
our citizenry is never going to have this exposure. And I don't think it should be zero-sum, either-or, you work for the government or you work someplace else. We need to, I think, advocate more effectively for the need for a range of training programs um, that speak to a lot of constituencies in the U.S., not simply the government. For 25 years, uh, the Africanist community in the United States has had a fairly nuanced uh, policy position on, on this, and that, that uh, namely, that yes, Africanists, as Laura says, should uh, work for the all U.S. government security agencies. It would be very nice if there was evidence that the CIA, uh, National Security Administration, Homeland Security, Department of Defense, and the many other, something like 50 security agencies of the U.S. government, were really intelligent about Africa. And that's what we are very, very eager uh, that they do. But that their knowledge not be limited by the particular perspectives that they'll get at the National Defense University or one of the military academies, where there's a much narrower focus of, upon security, but would look at, at, at broad U.S. interests. So, but at the same time, the, uh, the Africanists ha have said, we will not uh, take military or intelligence funding for uh, African studies uh, in Africa um, and uh, in our centers. There's been a break on that this year, and that people have been taking the Boren flagship money for uh, four at four centers, not at Michigan State, I might add. Um, but the, in general, for 25 years, the uh, since 1982, when uh, the Africanists uh, were offered at four centers about a half million dollars each if they would join the Defense Intelligence Agency in doing unspecified uh, studies of, of Africa, and all four centers uh, declined that. And out of that came the agreement ac broadly across the, United, uh, the Africanist community that because of the history of U.S. policy of having actively supported apartheid in South Africa, of having installed General Mobutu, where we see the, hu the huge uh, crisis in the eastern part of that country now of rape and militias and disorder that comes directly out of our supporting the military dictator of supporting the, the civil war in Angola, which with now the largest limbless population in the world per capita, of creating the mess in Somalia with pirates and, and essentially a governless state um, out of, once again, our active support with the Russians at one time, I might add, but uh, we switched, uh, the Siadbari uh, switched uh, horses in midstream from the Russians to us. So we both contributed towards a military dictatorship that eroded the civilian structures of that society. So we're in, in a world in which we, uh, as a country, have chosen throughout the Cold War, and now uh, with the largest military budget in the world, larger than all other nations put together, we're opting, continuing to opt for the military uh, option which created uh, much of the mess uh, in, in Africa. Um, and it, it seems to me that, that here, it's time to stand up and say there is another way. Uh, just through, just a few weeks ago, the Defense Department was looking at hacking of uh, corporate and um, uh, military uh, 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 computers in the United States and determined that, yes, a military uh, a response to hacking uh, is appropriate and is now part of U.S. policy. Uh, even in the Obama administration, uh, the uh, White House has signed a directive for General Petraeus to now is free to take U.S. Special Forces into any of the Horn of Africa countries uh, at will without the permission of the governments of those, those countries 
um, a dictum that even the Bush administration didn't, did not sign. So again and again and again, on Africa and on the rest of the world, we're opting for the military option. And I think in the long run, it's going to be highly costly. We cannot afford it in our domestic budget. And it's alienating and creating the terrorists that we say we're defending ourselves against. Maybe time for a final comment or two? I was just going to add somewhat amusingly that these discussions about the relationship between the academy and the military go back as far as, certainly as, <clears throat> as, as I'm aware of. Wasn't, did one of the ancient Greek philosophers once say that nations that draw too wide a distinction between their scholars and their soldiers end up with cowards doing all their thinking and idiots doing all their fighting? So I am, I don't agree with that in totality, but I certainly agree that our military needs to be smarter rather than, than less smart. I'm a teacher, I will teach anyone. My teaching is open, anyone can walk in my classroom, anyone can read my, my, my books. The problem that I have with military intelligence is that it tends to be secretive, it tends to be closed, it tends to be clandestine. And that's the, the, the reason or the, the problems that I have with, with uh, students being involved in taking military funding is that their knowledge somehow disappears into some nether world and becomes not, not, not available. Uh, so it is that question of transparency, a question of ethics that, uh, that guide the day for me. But I certainly want our military to be smarter rather than less so. Laura, would you like to say a final thing or two? Um, first, I'd like to thank you for organizing the conversation, Peter, and inviting me to be a part of it. Because I think we need to continue to remind ourselves and other people who are interested about what's at stake. Um, the kinds of things that James was just talking about, you know, the importance of having an informed military. And I would add to that a government that seeks to develop intellectual capacity in a broad spectrum, not simply utilitarian for the conflict at hand today. Great. Josh? You will be in Tanzania next year. I just see it in your eyes. Uh, you are sort of the, the, the lightning rod in many, in many respects. Uh, you are also a symbol of you know, the fact that we must struggle on. We can't just throw up our, our hands in the air and say, okay, we, we, uh, we have been uh, cut down and, and we're going to keel over and give up. Yeah, I think one of the things for my generation of scholars is we have to first begin to appreciate the activism that has been done in the, in the preceding decades and begin to, to take part in it. And it's been... Something that's been, I think, a bit detached from uh, students of my age. Uh, it, we've taken for granted all of these, uh, the, the hard work of those who've gone before us to make sure that we could have these types of funding. And now that these aren't there, not only do we have to fight to, to get some more non-traditional um, sources of funding and to make sure that we can you know, uh, add to the great scholarship on Africa that's been done before us, but also to make sure that, that we can uh, further this, uh, this sort of this discussion or debate to make sure that as the succeeding generations of, of scholars come in, that the funding will be there and that we can continue to have these uh, uh, very uh, important debates about not only teaching in the United States and public awareness of Africa, but also of, of foreign policy as well. I want to thank every one of you for your time and your wisdom. And, um, you know, it's great to see that uh, there are so many of you who have, who have fought to expand the opportunities for humanities and social science research in Africa in the past and that there are new generations coming up that are, that are going to fight to do the same in the future. So 
Uh, thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L, Org. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.